You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. Kenzie's going to throw up a few scriptures up on the screen for you. Um, Today's a little different in that we're not necessarily looking at one passage or one story, but um, as Mackenzie said earlier, we went through the story of Joseph this past week in Vacation Bible School, and so I want to take some time today and actually connect the stories of Joseph and of Abraham together uh, under the heading that we had all week last week, which is that God is faithful. And I want us to see today how God's faithfulness in Abraham's life led to faithfulness in Joseph's life, which led to continued faithfulness for the people of Israel. So um, just to give you a recap and an idea of what last week looked like, night one last week, On Sunday night, we took the kids out uh, through Genesis 37 when Joseph's uh, brothers uh, seek first to kill him and then ultimately end up selling him into slavery. And we talked that night about that God is faithful even when family is not. Family's not always faithful. Family's not always easy to deal with or sometimes family hurts. But the story we learn from Joseph is that God is faithful even when our biological blood family is not. Night two, we went out of Genesis 39. Joseph, in that point in the story, is in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife uh, makes an accusation against him, gets him in trouble. He ends up going to prison. And we talked about how God is faithful when other people are not. Joseph went to prison for something he did not do, and yet God was faithful to him in those moments and actually allowed him to prosper uh, there in prison. Night three, we talked about how God is faithful when times are tough, and Joseph, uh, in that section of of Scripture, he interprets dreams about an oncoming famine, and the uh, Pharaoh is so enamored with his wisdom and his ability to interpret dreams that he ends up putting Joseph in charge Uh, over all of Egypt, over all the grain, over all the food distribution. and So God is faithful even in those moments of difficulty. And then finally, the last night we talked about how God is faithful so that we can be forgiven and that we then can forgive others. In Genesis 45 and Genesis 50, and we'll be looking at some of these scriptures today as we tie these stories together, but Joseph's brothers come on the scene and Joseph is able to forgive them. He's able to forgive them because he's seen in his life that God was faithful throughout all those things. And so we're going to connect some of those dots today of Joseph and Abraham and their life story and what it means for God to be faithful and challenge to us. Now, the reason we need to do this is for this purpose. 
Sometimes I believe we take Bible stories or Bible accounts or uh, just, just segments of the scriptures and we extract them like we did last week with the story of Joseph. And we take those without looking at them, how they connect through what's called the grand narrative or the grand story of God and his redemption. And I understand the purpose for doing that. We can't stand up here every Sunday morning and go from Genesis to Revelation. You can't in Sunday school cover the entirety of the Bible in one sitting in a, in a Sunday school meeting or a small group meeting. So I understand the, the purpose of that. But the difficulty with it sometimes is we extract those stories or those accounts or those teaching moments from Old and New Testament. And sometimes we build entire theological perspectives and doctrine and even practice of what it means to follow God based on those individual pieces without seeing them in the complexity of and the completeness of the full story of God. And so that's why I wanted to today, under the heading of God being faithful, talk about how Joseph does not get to where he is without God's promise to Abraham first. So let's dive into it. Our first, first understanding today, our first teaching point is this, that God's faithfulness spans generations. God's faithfulness spans generations. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the call to, as he was then known, Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 17, there's a very uh, similar passage between God and Abram, and it's the, the point in Genesis 17 where he actually changes his name to Abraham, beginning in verse 1, Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. But no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you in the nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Joseph does not get to where he got to without God's promises to Abraham. God's covenantal faithfulness to Abraham and what would come for not only him, but more importantly for all of his, his, his persons, all of his people, all of his family line to come. And God's faithful nature and his promise to Abraham is crucial in Joseph's story. For in Joseph's story towards the end, what we find is that 70 members of Joseph's family, in Genesis 46 it tells the story, 70 members of Joseph's family find their way to Egypt. And from there they begin to multiply and increase greatly. 
what God had promised to Abraham, what God had made covenant with with Abraham begins to come true in Joseph's story. So much so that we'll read here in just a few moments, but in Exodus 1, it talks about how they grew increasingly strong and increasingly in number, so much so that that Pharaoh then was threatened. So we understand God's promise, God's covenant, God's, God's words to Abraham impact Joseph's life. We also understand sort of looking backwards that had Joseph not been placed in the position of power that he was, it's likely that his family, or at least those 70 that belonged to him and to his father Jacob, would not have survived the famine and the nation known as Israel would have never come to pass. Now, we can take the big theological position and look over and say, well, God would never allow that to happen, and that's true, but just very practically speaking, unless Joseph gets to the position he is in Egypt to where he can supply food and grain and he can then bring them to Egypt at the Pharaoh's wishes, they don't survive, the nation does not come to pass. But what's important through Joseph's story, and we talked about this last week with the kids, is that it is God who places him in that position. It's God that gets him to the place in Egypt where he then becomes in charge. Genesis 39 verse 2, as he's in Potiphar's house, it says, The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. And then later in Genesis 39, after Potiphar's wife has accused Joseph of doing something immoral and, and lied about him and he's thrown into prison, it says this in verse 23 of Genesis 39, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Whatever he did, whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph begins to realize that in his life. He begins to realize that God is behind every action and every reaction in his life. God is behind every purpose in his life. God is behind every instance of his life, good, bad, and otherwise. And we know that he comes to understand that by the way he talks to his brothers when they come on the scene. They have come to Egypt for food. They've come to Egypt for grain. He has sent them back. He's tested them. And then they come back before him, and, and they're, they're, they're in fear of him. They don't recognize him. He's not been with them for nearly two decades, not speaking their language because he's in Egypt. So he's not speaking the language of the Hebrews. He's speaking the language of the Egyptians. But they come to him in Genesis 45, and he identifies himself as Joseph, and listen to what he says in verses 5 through 8. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry at yourself. Don't beat yourself up. For God did this. He goes on, verse 6. The famine has been in, these land, in the land two years. There are still five years yet in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. In other words, to preserve the beginning of the nation of Israel and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
There's a second place in Genesis where he basically says the same thing. After Jacob, their father, dies, the brothers come back to him. They throw themselves at Joseph's feet once again. Oh, now he's going to be mad with us. Now he's going to take it out on us because Jacob has died. We stole all those years from Joseph and Jacob when we sold him into slavery. And they come down and they bow before him yet again. We're your servants. We're your servants. And he says in Genesis 50, verse 19 and following, Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in place of God? Meaning, do, do I have the power and the authority to punish you for this? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. He's not in God's place. He says, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. Do not fear for I'm going to take care of you and your families. Now notice Joseph doesn't really let them off the hook. I mean he's forgiven them. But what did he say? What you did you intended for evil. This is, this is one of those situations where we talk about this phrase. Forgive and forget. It's impossible for you and me to forgive and forget. Now, it's possible for you and me to forgive and not hold it against people. It's possible for you and me to forgive and see that God worked through a tough situation. But Joseph doesn't forgive and forget. He says, what you intended, you intended for evil. But God, but God has intended it for good. And so it's this promise made to Abraham for his descendants, for his people, for his offspring that begins to come through in the life of Joseph. And the two are intricately, intimately connected. There's a second promise in the book of Genesis that God demonstrates his faithfulness, which is one that we might find sort of odd. And if you know your scriptures, if you've heard the stories, if you don't, uh, I'll give you a little background. But basically, um, uh, Sarah, Abram's wife, They've, had, they've not had children. Abram, remember, has received this promise that they're going to have many offspring. And Sarah decides to take things into her own hands. She has an Egyptian servant, Egyptian slave that she's, that's with her. And uh, her name is Hagar. And she basically has Hagar go in and give herself to Abram so that they might have offspring. offspring. And the son that is born is the son named Ishmael. And Hagar runs from Sarah. In Genesis 16, encounters the angel of the Lord. And beginning in verse 9, the angel of the Lord says to her, Return to your mistress, to return to Sarah and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel said, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over all of his kinsmen. In Genesis 17, verse 20, Isaac, the birth of Isaac is promised for Abraham and Sarah, but listen to what God says in verse 20 to Abraham. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. 
later as Hagar and Ishmael are out in the fields in chapter 21, there are additional promises made to them by God that he is promising to look out for Ishmael to make him a great nation. Now, that's a promise that maybe takes us a little, catches us a little off guard, right? An illegitimate son, not the son of the covenant, not the son of the promise. God looks out for him too. God's going to multiply and bless him too. Absolutely. You want to know part of the reason why? Because in Genesis 37, when Joseph is sold into slavery, the scripture says that he was sold to a band of Ishmaelites. God raised up from Ishmael a people who Joseph would eventually be sold to instead of being killed, who eventually would have his way traded and sold all the way into Egypt, which he would eventually find promise there from God. A second promise made from God to not only Abraham and his offspring, but faithful to Ishmael and his offspring that God uses to protect Joseph from death. Why is it important for us to consider that God is faithful over many generations? It's an important lesson for us to learn because it helps us to understand how we handle our generations. We are, and I'm grateful for it, a multi-generational body of Christ here. And that is both a blessing and sometimes can be a challenge. It's a blessing because the reality of it is that because we have multiple generations here, multiple generations can learn from and be encouraged by one another. Younger generations can be encouraged by some of you who are maybe in the twilight of your life. And they can be encouraged by the stories you tell of how God has been faithful and what he has done and how he has worked, how you've seen him work in your life, how you've overcome situations and troubles and distress in your life. You then can also be encouraged and blessed by younger generations, by their endurance and their excitement and their, their desire to get out and go and be for God. Because it reminds you maybe of once in your life when you had that same ability and desire and and ways to do that. But it can be a challenge because, and I don't say this just simply in this church, it's in every church that's multi-generational. It can be a challenge because there are times when we allow the enemy to seek in and each generation wants the activities of the church to mirror their preference. And that discounts God being faithful over all generations. You who are here who are in the twilight of your years, God has been faithful to you in order that you might bless generations below you. And there were generations before you whom God was faithful to to get you to this position in your life. You who are in your younger years, your 20s, 30s, teens, and so forth, even on down the road, God is being faithful to you in some cases for generations that aren't even born yet. And it's important for us to recognize how God works from generation to generation to generation. Oftentimes, some generations not seeing the complete fruit of it. Abraham never saw the fulfillment of God's promise to him, did he? Joseph did not see the fulfillment of God's promise, for he died before God came and rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. But all realized that God was faithful, all realized that they would be faithful back to God for a bigger purpose, and that purpose was that God might receive glory.
And so we need to understand, remember, learn, adhere to, apply this reality, this truth, that God is faithful over all generations, and he's faithful over all generations that the next generations may be raised up, that the next generations may take the lead. But ultimately, his faithfulness spans the generations for his glory and not for ours. And that's the second point today. God is faithful for his glory. Talked about the promise to Abram and Abraham later. I'm talked about the promise. I want to talk about a third promise that's in Genesis in chapter 15. In Genesis 15, beginning verse 12, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners or strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." To Abram, who has been given this incredible promise of how massive and mighty and the multitude of his offspring, God says, wait a second, hold up just one moment. That promise I made to you, there's a part B. And part B is that they are going to sojourn and serve in a land that is not theirs. They are going to sojourn and serve in a land where they're going to be afflicted. God orchestrates the birth of the people of Israel and fulfills the promises to Abraham and Joseph through great difficulty. Not through comfort, not through ease, not through just handing them the keys to the kingdom. He makes a promise of what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. Kent Hughes in his commentary says it this way, the means by which Abram's descendants would come to possess the land would be a terrible ordeal. Abram learned that suffering would precede glory. That suffering would precede glory. God was faithful to Abraham, and he was faithful to Joseph, and he was faithful to all the offspring, and he was faithful to all the descendants. But it all ultimately ended up being a situation where they were enslaved and afflicted in a land that was not theirs before God would reveal to them the fullness of the land that was to come. And God's received glory through all of that. He's received glory in the life of Abraham. He's received glory in the story in the life of Joseph. But his greatest glory was yet to come, as we read about in the book of Exodus. But there's even a twist to this. It's not just Israel that God grows and makes into a great nation. But he lifts the Pharaoh up as well. In all of this, at the end of Genesis 41, Joseph begins to sell grain to the Egyptians and quote, all the earth due to the famine. What does that mean? It means the Pharaoh starts to get really, really rich and really, really wealthy. Genesis 47, the famine continues. Joseph has all these people come to him. We don't have any money. Okay, well, I'll give you grain for all your livestock. Pharaoh gets really, really wealthy. They finally come once more. The famine's still continuing. They don't have money. They don't have livestock. All they have left is land and themselves. And Joseph says, okay, 
I'll give you grain for your land and your life. And it says in verse 20 of chapter 47, Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them, and the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. God's promise to Abraham, his promise being fulfilled in Joseph, Joseph being in charge. We're going to raise up all these offspring, these descendants. They're going to be mighty number. Oh, but at the same time, I, God says, am going to give Pharaoh, put him in a position of unlimited power. All the money, all the livestock, all the land, all the life. We sit back and go, God, wouldn't it just have been easier? <laughs> wouldn't it just have been easier to smite all the bad people and just give Abraham's offspring what they wanted? Wouldn't it just have been easier just to, to have a big tidal wave come in off the Mediterranean and just wipe out all of Egypt? And we know you can do that because you can control all that kind of stuff. Wouldn't it be easier just to have done that and then just, just handed the keys to the kingdom of Canaan over to the Israelites? It would have been easier, but it would have been near as glorious. And God in his promises to Abram, to Joseph, and on and on was promising his faithfulness to their or to his glory. And ultimately that's what happens. In Exodus chapter 1, beginning verse 8. Now, roughly... Anywhere from 200 to 400 years passed between Genesis, the end of Genesis, and the beginning of Exodus. And the people of Israel have grown, and they've multiplied. And it says in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too mighty and many for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. They, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities and Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. A new Pharaoh comes to town. New Pharaoh comes to power. Now, he inherits all of that unlimited power of the previous Pharaoh. He inherits all the money. He inherits all the livestock. He inherits all the land. He inherits all the, all the people. But he decides the problem is these Israelites, these people that are people of God. And so they begin to enslave them. They begin to fulfill what God had promised to Abram in Genesis 15, that they would be afflicted. But remember the rest of God's promise. I will judge that nation, and I will bring them out. And that's what God tells Moses in Exodus 3, beginning of verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them to a land that is good and broad, flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Oppress them. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Abram's promise 
your descendants are going to multiply and be mighty. They had. Promise to Abram, your descendants are going to be oppressed and afflicted in a land that's not theirs. They were. His promise to protect Ishmael protects Joseph, who puts Joseph in charge, not only of saving the remnant of Israel, but actually giving the Pharaoh unlimited power. God is orchestrating all of this. And in every piece of it, he's faithful. In every piece of it, he's faithful. Now, humanly speaking, the reality of it is to be a people oppressed in a strange nation would be hard-pressed to say, oh, God is so faithful during this time, wouldn't it? And just, just think in, in your own personal lives, in my own personal lives, the times that we haven't felt oppression anywhere near that, but something has been in our life, and the struggle has been to not listen to that enemy voice that says, see, God has left you. God has abandoned you. He has no purpose in this. And what Abram and Joseph and on through the Exodus and on through the rest of the Bible says in this grand narrative of God and his story of redemption is that he is faithful and he always has a purpose. He is faithful over generations. He is faithful to his glory. And to close, I want to do this. We might look at these types of situations and Think through these, and it's just, it's quite a lot, honestly, just to take it all in and think, man, how is God orchestrating all these events and this event and that event and, and knowing? And there, there have been images released in the last week from a new telescope named after the second administrator of NASA called the James Webb Telescope. Kenzie's going to cycle through some images that came from that telescope of our universe. I'm going to turn these lights off so you can see them a little better. I won't begin to try to remember exactly how many light years this is away or looking. or But just let's let these images soak in for just a moment. But tonight, if you happen to be on your porch or your back deck or driving and you look up and you see an expanse and you think, wow. The expanse of the heavens is, is tremendous and great and large. All this is way, way past that. Just keep cycling through them, Kins. And we say, how could God orchestrate all he did from Abram to Joseph through the Exodus? How could God orchestrate everything that he does in my life? If he's orchestrated all this, my life and your life is nothing. It is nothing for God to snap his fingers, to be faithful in my life, to be faithful in your life, and to orchestrate events in our life that bring him glory. The psalmist says the the heavens display and declare the handiwork of God. This is what they're displaying and declaring. The reality for us is this, that our, our world, our culture looks at these pictures and says, well, there's two possibilities. One, that it all just kind of came to be. The other is that something or someone is behind it. And if that someone who's behind it is God, and if you are in Christ, you believe that someone behind it is God, 
then how can any of us, individually or collectively, aim to put ourselves at the center of his universe? I was talking with my oldest daughter about this week. She said, I have to go to my room and think for a little while because I am just a speck of dust. And she stopped and she said, oh, I'm less than a speck of dust compared to what God has done. But you know the amazing thing about you as a speck of dust and me as a speck of dust is that God has loved you and me so much that he's made a way for us to be with him. In that story of Joseph, they didn't recognize Joseph. The brothers didn't know who he was. And what I told the kids on that last night VBS is he had to reveal himself to them. He had to say to them, I am Joseph. He didn't look like Joseph. He didn't sound like Joseph. He had to say to them, I am Joseph and I forgive you. And what Jesus has done is he has revealed God for all mankind for anyone who has ever lived and ever will live until the end of times, and he has said, I am the Son of God. I am, as Colossians puts it, and, and Paul puts in Colossians, the visible image of the invisible God. I am revealing myself to you, and I'm here to let you know that you are forgiven. That you are forgiven. That, that all of this the magnificence and the depth and the brilliance and the beauty and all of that, as amazing as it is, that you, as my creation, are the dearest place in my heart. God is faithful across generations. God is faithful for his glory so that people can know that message. Oh, that we would be faithful back to him. Oh, that we would seek nothing more than to make more of him than we ever make of ourselves. Oh, that we, like Abraham and Joseph and the people of Israel and on and on and on, would trust him dearly with our lives. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.